Thank you for listening to this episode of Changes Big and Small. This is your host, Damian. Changes Big and Small will help you take action in your life with intention and purpose. In each episode, I invite you to accept unexpected challenges that will help you take action to live the life that you want. This is part one of my conversation with Dr. Stanley O. Gaines Jr. Dr. Gaines is a senior lecturer at Brunel University in London and specializes in the fields of relationship science and ethnic studies. He has authored or co-authored more than 100 publications, including Personality and Closed Relationship Processes from Cambridge University Press, and is the winner of the Distinguished Book Award for the International Association for Relationship Research in 2018. Moreover, he has served as principal investigator or co-investigator for studies that have been funded by organizations such as the American Psychological Foundation, Ford Foundation, Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues, Fulbright Foundation, and the Economic and Social Research Council in collaboration with UKAID. In this episode, we get into the research around relationships and especially attachment theory and interdependence theory. Dr. Gaines also talks about some of his research and his personal experiences. Welcome to Changes Big and Small, Dr. Gaines. Thank you very much. Thanks for speaking with me today. One of the things I noticed in terms of looking at some of the research you've done is that there are differences sometimes in relationship beliefs from country to country. Mm. And so I guess we could kind of see patterns amongst countries, but there's also differences amongst people. So for example, some people believe in love at first sight. And I think that's kind of a mindset to some extent, or Mm -hmm. even a determination of what do you consider to be love? Is it that rush that you talk about? Or are there other elements to it as well? And I'm curious, as you've explored different countries and different people, what have you found about some of the differences in those beliefs around close relationships? Honestly, what's struck me in terms of my main research has been a lot of the similarities, actually, in terms of not only what makes relationships tick, but what sorts of expectations people have out of those relationships. Now, it's like you say, they may be influenced by various factors. It could be the sociocultural context, could be gender, could be a lot of aspects of what people bring of themselves to the relationship. I've done the research on cultural values and what we call accommodation, trying to work things out, even when our partners have been really nasty to us. I'm an old guy now. I lived in the U.S. and worked there until the age of 39. And the first time outside the U.S., it was in Jamaica. And using the same questions that I used in the U.S., I started to find people asking, well, you know, what do you mean by pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Mm. Like, well, I'm supposedly to measure individualism. That might be a common saying in the U.S., which represents like less than 5% of the world's population. But once you get outside the U.S., I found... (laughs) certainly in Jamaica and also in the UK, that even some of the terminology, it's still English, right? At least that, that's the one language that I tended to work out pretty well. So what I found was once I controlled for those differences, the influence of, say, the me value of individualism, so how much am I orientated toward my own welfare, to bring down how accommodating people are willing to work things out versus 
the higher people were in we values, and this is across all three countries, US, Jamaica, UK, the more we oriented people are, the more they tried working things out when their partners were angry or critical, maybe in you know, seemingly unfair ways. So to me, that's been the interesting part because it's, at one point I thought I was on something because I was seeing some differences in those links, but I found actually not everybody appreciates the same items to the same extent. <laughs> so I really think that putting yourself up by the bootstraps mentality makes a lot of sense. In the US, that goes down reasonably well. It doesn't go down well outside of the US, I found. But it's sort of trial and error. It's only after a while that I started to learn, oh, if I want to ask that question in this country, maybe in this context, maybe here's a way that people will realize, oh yeah, this is what he's getting at. So that's been the interesting part, seeing the, the dynamics of the relationship, what makes the relationship tick and keep going. There's a lot of similarity across different parts of the world, but how we tap into those concepts like cultural values, these organized sets of beliefs that get communicated to us, but maybe like you're saying, we as individuals may differ. We, we don't always buy into the same values to the same extent, even in the same country. So that to me has been in a way surprising given how a lot of the literature talks about like individualism versus collectivism, like it's either or, the entire countries are this way or the other. What I found is Number one, it's like you're saying, a lot of differences among individuals. And number two, the similarities are striking once you take into account the methodology aspect. It struck me, well, I can't make these assumptions about difference because I haven't taken into account differences in how easy it is for people in country A versus B versus C to appreciate what it is I'm trying to ask because of the way that I've asked it. And it, it was sort of a trial and error process, living and learning. We tried to learn a bit. <laughs> Even as you say that, that still makes me wonder about, for example, the U.S. versus India or the U.S. versus China. Maybe the U.K., the U.S. and Jamaica have a lot in common compared to some countries that may have more histories of arranged marriage, for example. I'm curious about that. It doesn't sound like it's your area of research, but I'm just thinking out loud. I must say arranged marriage is one of those vastly understudied topics in the relationship field. And it probably has everything to do with the fact that most of the research is coming out of the U.S. or other so-called Western countries. And getting together the resources to, to do justice to marriage in all its forms around the world has proven to be a bit of a challenge. There's some colleagues that I knew, I knew who were trying to put together a, a project. And I think in principle, it's still forming, but it's been kind of years in mm -hmm. the making, which I think is not a bad thing. It's just, well, different colleagues, different parts of the world have different sets of resources that they can draw upon or you know, not draw upon. So even doing so-called cross-cultural or maybe what I would call cross-national research has its own difficulties. In my case, I happen to have lived and worked in at least a few different contexts. So at least I've got a perspective now that I didn't have back in 2001 when I left the US for good to come to the UK. The one other thing I would add is it may well be that we have differences from country to country in how high or low people score and different values, which may be a different issue from how does that value affect the way that people behave in relationships. So maybe the average scores are different 
but the link between the values of behavior is still the same in different parts of the world. But what you say is absolutely right. I have never done relationship research where one of the, the countries had arranged marriage on a wide scale or even much of a scale. What I've been trained to do is quantitative. I am kind of a number cruncher. So you give me stats and I can go to town on, on that data. I'm not so good when it comes to qualitative. I, I'm just not trained in, in such methods. And I really appreciate the skill set of people who do qualitative research. I've dabbled in it, but I wasn't trained in it. And ideally, we'd have that mix of quantitative and qualitative research in various contexts around the world. And it seems to be easier, from my experience, to get hold of the more small-scale qualitative research once you get outside the Western country. Not so easy to find quantitative research with a sample size of 100 and stuff like that. So there's a confound about the type of data is available and how much you can generalize from it. Some people would say, well, 100, that's not much, but that's different from an NF5, right? So in a 5 you may be able to collect a lot of data from you know, five people, or let's say five couples, but then there are trade-offs both ways. Large samples, you get a, a little information from a lot of people. Small samples, you get a lot of information from a few people. Ideally, we'd have some blending of the two, I think. But it's very interesting now, too, with all of the, I guess, I don't know how much credence to give this, but all of the reality TV things that happen around relationships as well. So mm. let's see. Like, is love blind, though? How much do people need to talk and explore values? Do people have to live together before they get married? All of those interesting questions that society seems to be grappling with to some extent as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. At, at a time when it seems that we expect more of our relationships than, say, previous generations did in various parts of the world, that's pretty well documented in so-called Western countries, but increasingly in countries that wouldn't call themselves Western as well. So as the stakes go up, for example, marriage, well, it's about, you know, creating that, that home, maybe starting a family or maybe not and stuff like that. But we place demands and our partners place demands on the relationship that maybe, you know, 50 years ago weren't getting placed on relationships to the same extent, like mutual respect, mutual genuine love, so we have those expectations, plus in many parts of the world, it's a lot easier to get out of marriages than it, it was decades ago. So yes, lots of societal change around the world. We're demanding more relationships, expecting more. The, the way that I think about it is if we kind of generally could think a little more in terms of what am I bringing to the relationship? What, what am I doing to make it work? As opposed to just approaching it as sort of a tick box. What is my partner doing for me? What is my partner bringing to the table? I think that could be a, like a useful starting point, trying to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Well, what we're offering, if the other person were offering that to us, would we think that was enough? <laughs> like lack of commitment? I'm just making up one. Right? So you're right. Lots of demands that in previous eras just weren't an issue, maybe should have been an issue, but weren't but for a whole host of reasons. For example, the women's rights movement in various countries around the world from the you know, 1960s onward, you know, a lot of social change, all sorts of social change that uh, made us that much more, I think, 
aware of what it is that we're looking for and of what other people might be looking for in us beyond physical appearance, beyond material wealth and stuff like that, or status. So you're right. Those to me are the big challenges, those, those truly interpersonal challenges. And I think that that may be where, for example, so-called reality shows could be selling us a bit short. There's this image that there's that right person out there. You just got to look hard enough and present yourself well enough. Well, real life doesn't, doesn't really work like that. And it, it may be that there's not one particular person. There may be lots of quite suitable partners. But if we can work on us, at least as much as we hope to, you know, work on or draw out the best of other people, wouldn't it be great to have a reality show like that? (laughs) Bearing one's soul over an extended amount of time and maybe without a prize attached. (laughs) It, It is interesting what's marketed as kind of relationship establishing and maintaining behavior, what's seen as appropriate or, or not. I don't mean to sound biased toward reality shows. I, I should probably watch them more before I judge them. <laughs> <laughs> or not. <laughs> the other thing that came up is the whole idea of the I versus the we, because you talked about that a little bit earlier. And I think if the focus is on what I can find or what somebody can offer me, then it's much more on the I than what we can create collectively. One of the cool things, like the work I mentioned on accommodation, was it, it comes out of a whole tradition that's called interdependence theory. It's about how two people affect each other's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. We started off as a very much exchange-based theory. It's like, if I give so much, then I, I rightfully expect to get this much in return. And if it doesn't work out like that, then I may be out the door. I, I'm not going to commit. But a mentor of mine, Carol Russell, eventually argued, well, maybe there are situations where we put aside our self-interest and devote more time and attention to the relationship so that it lasts over the long term. So it, it may not feel right at the moment, but it may be if we just give it time and, and we do our best to try to work things out. If the other person doesn't come around, then that's one thing, if they don't respond. But if they come around as well, you know, we try to work things out, then maybe rather than always put our our own needs first, sometimes we can think about the relationship. What potential do we see in it? Both of us as a couple, as a unit, as a dyad. I know that you go both into attachment theory and interdependence theory. I've had an episode before on attachment theory that listeners can listen to, but interdependence theory is a bit newer to me. Can you speak a little bit more about that in relation to close relationships? Yeah, absolutely. So within social psychology, we're we're all into understanding how other people affect our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. And interdependence theory comes out of that whole tradition. So when I mentioned about people affecting each other's thoughts, thanks and behavior, it's like, it's not just me being affected by somebody else, I affect the other person as well. My words My actions have consequences for the other person and for the health of the relationship, just like that other person's words and deeds affect me. So interdependence theory is all about that reality and what people do given that reality. Some people try to kind of gather power for themselves. 
make other people dependent on them so that the other people won't leave the relationship, even though it might be in the, their best interest to, to get out like in abusive relationships. So interdependence theory is it's all about to what extent are people affecting each other in ways uh, that promote a relationship or maybe undermine a relationship. Like if people are being very selfish, very I-orientated, it wouldn't be surprising huh, if they say and they do things that even if they don't intend it, can kind of wear down the relationship, the resolve of the other person. That in a nutshell is what interdependence theory is about. Sure enough, there's the satisfaction aspect, like how happy am I based on, now this is where it gets a bit calculated and one could question it, but anyway, for what it's worth, this is what the theory argues. The, the more people experience goodies, rewards, the more likely they are to commit. The more often they receive like penalties, costs, the less likely they are to commit. But there's more to commitment than just how satisfied are people. Not everybody would agree with that way of thinking of satisfaction, benefits versus costs. But dependence theorists are totally on board, but outside of interdependence theory, not everybody's. But at least interdependence theorists have admitted there's more to it than that, to a person committing and then staying in the relationship. Part of it is also, there is that looking around, that calculating, do I think I can do better? Is this the, the best that I can do given the circumstances? And the more alternatives we see to the relationship, which could be actually just being on our own or being with somebody else, the more we see those other options, the less committed we tend to be. And then finally, there's kind of how much we put into the relationship what's called investments, time, money, emotions, anything that's hard to pull back once we've made that offer, basically. For example, for a married couple, what about the house we've bought together? What about the children we've raised together? And, you know, all sorts of things. So there is this model called the investment model that's a main part of interdependence theory. Some people research that mainly. That's not been my main focus. I'm interested in stuff like Number one, even when it's not obviously in somebody's best interest right now, to what extent will they try to still work things out? That might be a good thing. It might be not a good thing. I'm not judging it. But given that willingness to work things out, are the qualities that people bring to the relationship that might affect that willingness? Hence, that's where attachment theory comes in for me. I'm trained not as a personality psychologist who's really all about the study of the, the individual. For me, it started anyway as a means to an end. I want to understand people's personalities because I want to understand how they affect the dynamics of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And the way that I see it over and over again is many of the qualities that people bring to the relationships actually do get played out pretty consistently in those relationships. Mm -hmm. We sometimes think, oh, well, I'm a totally different person in this situation over that. Really? Or are most of us that different? In fact, don't, don't we expect our partners to be somewhat consistent, at least in the way they behave toward us? So to make a long story short, that's interdependence theory. I've done a lot of work in that area, but where I see some gaps in that literature has to do with those individual differences. Not everybody goes into the relationship going me first. And I want to know why is that? Mm. You know, what are those qualities? Attachment theory has its critics, but I must say over and over again, I find the more securely attached people are, the more willing they are to trust partners in general, the more often they'll try to work things out with their current relationship partner. The more distrustful people are for whatever reason, 
the less they'll try to work things out, the more they'll do things, say things that undermine the relationship. That's just really interesting stuff. And that's where I was able to look at different contexts like heterosexual romantic relationships that were mostly within the same ethnic group, inter-ethnic heterosexual relationships, mostly inter-ethnic same-sex relationships. That basic dynamic is the same across those different types. So once I saw that over and over again, I thought, I think we're onto something here. <laughs> so one of the, the things that I'm kind of proud of is being on that kind of early curve of trying to bring those approaches together. I've never seen myself as in one camp or the other, even though I've been trained to do interdependence theory, but I've always dabbled. And I give my mentor credit, Carol Russell, she let me dabble in, like you say, values, attachment styles. I think of those as kind of attitudes, maybe more easily changeable than values, but values are amenable to change as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed it and think someone else would benefit, please share the episode with them. Would you reach out to me with any questions you may have? You can get in touch by emailing contact at changespeakandsmall.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. It helps other people find the show. And it's the best way that you can show appreciation for my weekly interviews on Changes Big and Small. Remember, change begins with one small step. Have a great week.